Good morning. Welcome to New Hope and Happy Easter to you all. Thanks to uh, Kendall and Amy who did the lovely decorations here. And uh, thank you to Ethel Burney who is honoring us by being with here today. The fact that this place is standing... The fact this place is standing has a lot to do with uh, Ethel and her family and their faithfulness to Stone Chapel over the years. So it's good to have you with us. You're welcome. Uh, So we've been talking this Lent about partings of the ways. We did an overview of church history. And the history of the church is a history of parting ways, sometimes parting ways from heresy, sometimes parting ways unnecessarily from one another. But it all started with one most important parting of the ways, which after all was Jesus' parting of the ways from the tomb. We read in Matthew's Gospel that after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone onto the Easter bunny and sat on it. (laughs) His appearance was like lightning, his clothes were white as snow, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know what you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus, who was crucified, but he's not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. You'll see him there. So now I've told you. And the women hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they're going to see me there. And while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, here's what you need to say. Say his disciples came during the night, and they stole him away while we were sleeping. Because if this report gets to the governor, we'll make sure he's satisfied and we'll keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and they did just as they were instructed. And this story has, in fact, been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. But that's not the true story, is it? The true story is that Jesus rose from the dead, that he parted ways with death. That's the story. That's the story that the gospel writers want to tell us. That's the story that the writers of the New Testament want to tell us. That's the story that the writers of the Old Testament, in a hazy way, were looking forward to. That is the story that is the foundation of our faith. Thursday night, as we are wont to do on Maundy Thursday, our church gathered. Now, traditionally, Maundy Thursday is when the bishop washes the feet of the poor. And here at New Hope, we have no bishop. And we say, forget the poor. 
we're going to sit around and read a gospel. So again, we sat, we got together at the Peter's house, and we read through the gospel of Mark this year. And it was a great conversation on the way home with, with my girls as they're talking about how action-packed Mark's gospel is and about how Jesus seems constantly to be telling other people that they're morons. And in, when, I, when I got home later on, I got an email from Kristen Lefebvre, of all people, who had an excellent, excellent question, and I got her permission to share this uh, with you. She said, uh, so the gospel of Mark is ripe with demons and impure spirits. And as we strive to follow Jesus, should we be looking out for things like this? It seems as if they were of that time and not this one. I can't say I spend much time thinking about demons and impure spirits, and so, you know, that's probably good. But Jesus spent quite a bit of time dealing with them. So when people struggle with illnesses of the mind, like depression or anxiety, are these simply the effects of our broken world, or at times perhaps the working of spirits, like is mentioned above. So, I mean, people will have seizures, they'll foam at the mouth, they'll writhe on the floor, so are they possessed? Or maybe the writers of the Gospels saw these things and just called them demons. Just curious on modern-day theology to this effect. Well, the truth is, modern-day theology would probably say, yes, that's really... What was going on? Jesus was way ahead of his time. He was a tremendously effective therapist. He could see somebody have a brief contact with him and quickly cure depression uh, without need for Prozac or extensive talk therapy. Jesus could have done a lot better if he had been billing 135 an hour and kept it going on and on and on, but he just did it right away and that was it. Others would say when he healed somebody, he had insight into the human body, or he, he simply knew the right folk remedy. I don't know if you, just, you heard, there's a, a, apparently a cure for MRSA has been found. Uh, I just read this this week. A cure for MRSA has been found. It was found in a 10th century Anglo-Saxon medical book. Uh, the cure involves mixing ox gall with uh, some other things, and evidently it really works on MRSA. So, you can look forward to that if you get MRSA. Uh, you know, just because just a cure is old doesn't mean it's not effective. So some people would say, yeah, Jesus just was a you know, really talented healer. But I don't think that is what Mark is trying to say. I don't think that's the story that the gospel writers are trying to tell us. The biblical scholars refer to incidents like the ones that Christian's talking about as power encounters. Jesus has these power encounters when he is uh, dealing with people who have uh, what appears to be demon possession. And the point of telling these stories, I think, is not to illustrate an effective technique of social work. The reason that the authors tell us these stories is to say that there was a power encounter and one side won and the other side lost. And the side that won was Jesus. And the side that loses is everybody who comes against him. I mean, this story of Jesus departing from the tomb, Jesus parting ways from the tomb, is not just a story of Jesus rising from the dead and God working out his glorious power. That's all there. But as Matthew is telling the story in the passage I read, that has a lot to do with vindicating Jesus and shaming 
all the people who tried to put him there and keep him there to stay. It's a story not only of Jesus rising from the dead, it's a story of Jesus humiliating the chief priests and the scribes and the Romans and the soldiers and the Easter Bunny and everybody else who tried to keep him in there. Maybe not the Easter Bunny. We'll deal with that later. But I just love that cover of the bulletin. It really has become a tradition here, hasn't it? Now, what Mark is trying to say is that Jesus had these power encounters. And so when Jesus performs one of these exorcisms or healings, he is winning. He is demonstrating that he is victorious. And in order to have victory, in order to have a win, you need an opponent. You need an enemy. A friend of mine named Fleming Rutledge, who is a, now retired, but she's a, a preacher from Virginia, she said, the Christian account of evil is unlike any other. We do not, and really we cannot know how and why evil happened. This whole problem of evil is one of the most difficult ones that we could try to figure out. It's hard to understand why God lets it continue. And really, none of the attempts to explain it have ever worked. But at every point along the way in the biblical story, evil is faced for what it is. It's taken with the utmost seriousness. It's identified as the ultimate enemy, not only of God, but especially of humanity. Evil is bent on destruction. It's malevolent and it's determined. And at every point in the New Testament, this power is present and it's active and it's named. It's the power of sin and death. Satan, the devil, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air who is at work in those who are disobedient toward God. And the calling of the Christian is to resist this evil. As Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him firm in your faith. When Paul talks about resurrection in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed, Harry Potter fans, is death. For he has put everything under his feet. I think there's a reason why God has given all of us this appreciation of competition, a competitive instinct. There's a reason why our souls rebel at this idea that everybody runs the bases and everybody gets the same trophy at the end of the season. There's a reason we watch these basketball tournaments, because we want to see someone win, and we want to see Duke lose. May it be this year. 
But these games are exciting because there is a winner and a loser. We want to see a win. We want our side to win. And we love to see a deserving opponent like Duke lose. It's hardwired into us. And the story of the gospel is not that Jesus and the soldiers and the chief priests and the scribes all got a chance to run around the bases and the score was tied at the end. The story of the gospel is that one side won and every other side lost. That Jesus took all comers and came out on top. There's an awesome sermon that I just was turned on to in the last month by a guy named Rabanus Maris. Anybody heard of Rabanus Maris? I hadn't either until a few weeks ago. Rabanus Maris was a ninth century Frankish monk, later on the archbishop. Rabanus Maris, by the way, means the dark raven, which right away I think is just an awesome name. <laughs> you wonder how he got that nickname and this is even before football, Rabanus Morris had an awesome name. And Rabanus Morris had this to say in his sermon on the Easter Vigil. He said, look, my friends, the day we wait for so long every year has arrived. The day when our champion put the Prince of Shadows in chains. When he shattered the doors of death, set free the souls of the blessed and rose triumphant in glory from the deep. On this night, when our Redeemer got up again, there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Master came down from the skies, came near, rolled away the stone from the mouth of the tomb, and sat upon it. That stone was the one that some of those men from Judah had set there in their nastiness, and they put Roman sentries there to guard it. But Christ you see, is born among us and for us. He suffers, he rises again in order that we can be reborn into life through him. Indeed, everything was restored through him that night. He was that night the first one to waken from sleep. He sprung us out of prison that night. He gave us back the life we had lost in Adam. And that night, that ancient wandering mass of inchoate humanity wandered back to its homeland in Eden, where Christ had pushed aside that sentry cherub. See, on the night, on that night, the door of paradise swung open, for only Christ could have closed it, and only he could open it. Again, the Master rose to give us a preview of our own future resurrection. This, to me, is a much more interesting story than everybody runs the bases. And this is a much more interesting story than Jesus discerned the severe emotional difficulties that some people were having. And it's a more interesting story to me, not only because it's just more interesting, but it's more interesting to me because it rings true. Because there is evil. You may have heard just this week 
just a few days ago in Kenya, 148 of our brothers and sisters in Christ were slaughtered for no other reason that they were, than that they were our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not just bad. That's not just wrong. That's not just unfortunate. That's not just the result of a misunderstanding. That sort of thing happens because there is such a real thing as evil. And such a real thing as evil needs to be beaten. It needs to be destroyed. We need somebody who is powerful enough to do that. And if he can destroy death, then he's got the juice to destroy evil. And Easter is a vindication of everything that Jesus said about who he was and about what he can do. I'll close before we take communion together with what Fleming Rutledge says about this resurrection. What does resurrection tell us? It tells us that God is the victor over sin and death. It tells us that evil is vanquished now in suffering love, and it will be vanquished forever in the triumph of God. I I cannot tell you why God delays that day, and neither can anyone else, but I can only tell you that in the resistance of Christians when we see it, we see living witness to the hope that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who believe in God hold to the biblical promise that someday we will know the answers in the kingdom of God. And at that point, it won't make any difference because then there will no longer be even a memory of evil. May that day come quickly. Will you stand with me and join in the words of the Nicene Creed, which we confess along with the faithful churches throughout the ages. We believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I invite you to come forward and receive the elements and then take them back to your seat. We'll all take of them together. Uh, The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. He was betrayed while he was eating with his disciples. Jesus took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, 
and gave it to them, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. He then took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Paul tells us when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.